We're in 1 Peter chapter 4, and uh, we're going to have a word of prayer, then we'll look at God's word today. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the day you've given to us. You are so kind and so good, so that each morning we read in the Bible that your mercies are new. And with that, Lord, comes the opportunity to confess to you that though our outward man perisheth, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. And we often feel our weakness, Lord, especially uh, when we've maybe had an abbreviated evening, haven't slept well, or other things of that nature, but thank you that you're always sufficient, and we're seeing that play out as we study First Peter. I pray this morning, Lord, that you would just bless these services here today. I uh, pray that you'd be with Bill as he's not feeling well, whatever the particular situation. Pray that you would just encourage him today and grant that the downtime and rest that he has uh, uh, through this, he would recover very quickly and uh, be back to his normal health and strength. We just want to pray that you will bless us in our class. We, we come with hungry hearts, Lord, and needy lives. And so would you see the blessing to each of us today? Would no one go out of the class without some sense of your presence, your kindness, your blessing, and uh, speaking to us in our own hearts according to our own needs. And we'll thank you for these things now in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. All right, 1 Peter chapter 4, and let's go to verse 12, all right? We'll read the passage that we're looking at here today. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time that judgment, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome? What will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So, quick recap, as uh, briefly as we can do this. We've been studying the epistle of 1 Peter, and we've been finding that there, or been ex exploring the theme there, that Christ is sufficient in suffering. It's one thing to say that 1 Peter is about suffering. It's another thing altogether to try to apply that message or to see how Peter wants to apply it, or how the book can be applied. So you take it a step further, and we've been working with this idea that Christ is sufficient in suffering. And we have seen that unfold along three main sections, or three key things in the book. The first section running from chapter 1 down through chapter 2, verse 10, is that we see Christ is sufficient in suffering because his salvation sustains us. We are in the main central section of the book. We are seeing the second thought, Christ is sufficient in suffering because his example guides us. We're finishing that up today. We're in the last part of that central and larger section. We're going to, next week, Lord willing, look at the last, which is the 
fifth chapter of First Peter, which is showing us Christ is sufficient in suffering because his humility inspires us. One thing I think to notice about any of these divisions as we move along in the book is that they do tend to reflect the key thought and development as you go along. They don't mean to imply that you don't ever find any of those thoughts except in that section. For example, humility you're going to see coming up today. And this is true really as you look at this, you'll find a number of the thoughts as Peter unfolds the argument in the book. But it's useful for us, I think, moving forward. Now, looking at this central section, we, we, we reach another milestone, as I've suggested, because we're finishing this today, God willing, and then next week we'll be looking at the last of those sections. We have three lessons there, but only two Sundays, so I've got to find some way once again to double up, and uh, I'll do my best to get that sorted out. I sort of have the idea for what I want to do, do my best to get that sorted out this week. Anyway, it looks like I need to do something about my margins. But hopefully you can read that or you can figure it out or look down at your notes. But we're looking today at the Christian as a sufferer. So this is kind of the idea that I was mentioning a moment ago. Suffering really permeates the book. And that's really the theme that's going on in the book. And what Peter's been doing in this main central section is applying Christ's example. So let's go back and just notice that chapter 2 verse 21 is sort of the keynote theme for this section or keynote verse. For it says here, for to you, uh, for to this you have been called, the idea of, of suffering, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And so we've seen applications of this idea now. Christ, his example, uh, guides us. We've seen this in uh, a, a number of different areas, and this morning we're looking at probably the keynote section on suffering. This is probably the most intense treatment in a given section within the book that Peter has. And so that's kind of where it's all coming out. If you were looking for, again, kind of a lead verse in this section to point out why I would choose the idea of the Christian as a sufferer, then you would find that in verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... So in most of these, we've seen a key word, right? So the Christian in civic life, we, we saw that back in chapter 2, verses uh, 11 through 17, something like that, 18, whatever it was, and, and on and on it goes. But this morning, the Christian as a sufferer. So here's something to keep in mind, and I think this sets the stage for maybe us understanding the, how I want to present this today, and I think really what seems to be the, the burden on Peter's heart. I guess I tend to see these things maybe sometimes, and I try not to see them when they're not there. But with pastoral background, it's really easy to see the heart of Peter come out and to see the pastoral application of this or the pastoral overtone of this by looking at the very first ver word of verse number 12, beloved you can tell that Peter now really wants to reach out and kind of bring this to a climax with his audience. And how does he do this? Well, it sort of plays off of this center idea that I have here in these opening statements that suffering's very difficult for us. I mean, is there anybody here this morning who's standing in line to suffer? I don't think that typically happens. I mean, I, I often have told people over the years, I'm a big chicken. I, you know, I... 
I, I see some of the things that people around me go through. Over the years, it's been my privilege to witness a lot of this in ministry. And I, I oftentimes stand back and look at some of these situations and just marvel at God's sufficient grace and often think to myself, I just don't know that I could do that. And of course, that's a fallacy, but it's probably a good way to feel. The fallacy is that if God put you in that circumstance, he would equip you and give you the grace to do it. And so probably the better statement is, I marvel at the grace of God when I see what some people are called to endure and how they are able to do that. And so this, this though suggests the point that it's easy for our first reactions not to be good. When a difficulty comes our way, for example, early in the book, we find our first indication that this book is going to be about this one. Back in chapter 1, in verse 6, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you are grieved by various trials. Who wants that? Uh, no one really wants to have to go through times of intense testing or suffering. And so Peter, understanding this, sets this up, and, and for those of you who are interested in this kind of thing and you're, you're looking at it from this perspective, what you'll find is, is that three times he issues a command. It's what we would say in grammar, a present imperative. So it's an imperative, it's in the present tense, which tells us something, especially when it's in the negative, which it is here. And it implies that Peter is attempting to counter something that potentially is already going on, an attitude or an, a response that isn't the correct one. And so it's, it takes it out of the realm of the hypothetical. That's what I'm trying to say. It, it puts it more in the realm that Peter is cognizant of this is how people react and may very well be cognizant of the fact that some of that is going on amongst his readership or perhaps he's seen it elsewhere, but he you could render any of these with the word stop. So, for example, the first one we're going to look at is don't be surprised. That's how it's rendered here in the ESV, surprise. It's the very same word that we saw before about stranger, back in chapter 4, verse 4. Have a look there quickly. For with respect to this, they are surprised. So it's translated surprised again here in uh, verse 12 of chapter 4 also. The King James says, think it not strange. And the reason that I bring this up is because that, that tends to bring out the background of the word strange, stranger, odd. So if we put our stop with that, here's what we'd have. Stop thinking it's strange. Stop being surprised if suffering comes your way. Suffering, as I say here, should not catch us off guard. A couple of reasons. This is not meant to be an exhaustive list, but a couple of reasons why suffering might, in fact, be a bit of a surprise to us. And what it really requires, folks, and this is kind of what I'm after this morning, is we have to adjust our thinking so that it's biblical and not natural. Because if we react according to the old man, natural thinking, the way we come, you know, with the Adamic nature, we are liable to have one of these reactions Number one, we have to remember and we have to have our thinking transformed that suffering, misfortune, difficulty, call it what you want, but when it comes our way, it's not random. It's not just, well, you think it's some strange thing that's happened to you. Or you look at it and maybe are tempted to say, well, why, why did this happen to me? 
And we have to continually flush out the wrong kind of thinking with the right kind of thinking. And remember, nothing is random with God. And it may be easy to say that, but there's a great deal of comfort in recognizing that in your life. When the fiery testing comes, and he uses that metaphor, notice in verse 12, fiery trial, when it comes to test you. So back where I was reading in chapter 1, you can go back if you'd like there for a moment more, I didn't read verse 7. Chapter 1, verse 7 says this, and this is where we get our first hint of this metaphor of a fire to illustrate a trial. Because he says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perisheth, though it is tested by fire. All right, so here's some verses. This is common in Scripture, right? Psalm 66, verse 10. For you, O Lord, have tested us, you have tried us as silver is tried. Well, when someone goes to refine silver, is that random? No, that's intentional, right? Right? It's okay to nod your head. It's intentional, and it's a good thing because the refiner wants to have the absolute best and most pure product that he can. This is the same thing that's true of God working in our lives. We already looked at chapter 1, uh, verses 6 and 7, but Peter, at the end of our section, brings this out in even more clarity by concluding with a statement about God's will. So in verse 19, therefore let us who suffer look according to God's will. I'm just saying that if you respond to these things by thinking that they're random, then you tend to think that life is out of control and it tends to bring a great deal of, of insecurity and frustration and even anger. If we respond to them as well, I didn't want that, but God has given that. And God ultimately has a good purpose in it. It's for my good, it's for his glory. And I tell you folks, it's easy to stand up here and say that. When it comes, it's not. This is why Peter has to say, so don't have that way of thinking about it. The second thing is, it's also not a given. What I mean by this statement is community and culture. It's not a given that they are going to be supportive to good works. You would think so. Right? I mean, isn't that the way it's supposed to be? In fact, Peter even tells us that that is God's plan for human government. Chapter 2, verse 14. Have a look. He says here, to review, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So you say, okay, well, we're here at Community Baptist Church and we're doing a good work. And the community should be therefore supportive of us, not necessarily a given. I couldn't tell you how many times this was impressed on me throughout all the years of ministry in Pennsylvania because our ministry had a Christian school. And I, I understand that kids that go to Christian school are not perfect. I understand that real well. But nevertheless, you would think that a community by and large would be glad and happy and supportive of Someone who's taking kids and seeking to instill the proper values, even if you don't look at it from a Christian standpoint, the proper values of courtesy and politeness and hard work and respect and all these types of things in their kids, and you would think that they would be glad you're there. 
you're making a real contribution to the community, even if they don't worship at your church or subscribe completely to what your religious beliefs are. Think again. It doesn't work that way. There is a built-in antagonism so often with the world that it doesn't matter what kind of good you do, they don't like you. I remember one example of this. Uh, there was, <laughs> I won't use the name since this is recorded, but there was in our town a, everyone knew because he wrote occasionally to the paper and other things, but an extraordinarily liberal attorney. And this was relatively in my early in my years there. He was elected to, the, to serve on the school board. Well, in Pennsylvania, there's a law. I'm not sure what is done here, but in Pennsylvania, there's a law that the public school has to provide the same transportation for the, your school as they do for their school. Well, reflecting this man's antagonism, he was elected to this seat on the school board, and he immediately went in and told them, you know, this is costing us a lot of money. Didn't tell them, well, we're also saving you a lot of money. But we're, 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 this is costing us a lot of money. We ought to cut off that bus support for that Christian school over there. Well, I guess I said, well, anything that helps the bottom line, you know, we're struggling and have to raise taxes every year or so because we waste money. And uh, so they voted for it. And we got some wind of it, notification, whatever. And I contacted our Christian School Association in the, in the state with which I served 25 years, because I already knew, I already knew this guy had told them wrong. And it wasn't too terribly long before he got, this attorney, got a letter from our, not the churches, but our Christian School Association in the state, got a letter from our attorney and ended up having to go back to his school board and apologize to them because he had told them, given them wrong advice, legally. That's pretty humiliating for a, a lawyer, right? Gave them the wrong advice legally. So don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when you're a Christian cake baker or whatever, that they don't like you. Cake probably tastes as good as the next guy's, but this is the way it is. Instead, what kind of a response? So again, it's, it's always good to tell people not just what's not the way to do things. It's good to tell them that and then say, here's the way you should do things. So here's a bad way to respond to suffering by being surprised for whatever reason, as if it were random or as if we were really thinking that everybody should just come to our praise and support, and they don't, and we're surprised by that. Instead, if it comes, we should rejoice. Peter doubles down. Look at the words that he uses in this verse. He says in the next verse, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice. I'm looking at this phrase right here, rejoice and be glad. Because he doubles down on the words. Did you notice that? For emphasis sake, rejoice and be glad. Almost sounds like the Beatitudes, right? Rejoice and be exceeding glad. For great is your reward in heaven. Peter kind of mimics that. He's thoroughly acquainted with the teaching of Jesus, and he kind of mimics that. But in English, maybe we could say something like, not that rejoice, uh, be, rejoice and be glad is bad, but it would help us maybe to, to double down on the idea like Peter as if we said something like, rejoice, which has joy in it, 
and be overjoyed. That would, that would really help to sort of bring out the, the nuancing and the intensification of the thought. Why would you rejoice? Why would you do what James says in chapter 1, verse 2 of his epistle, where he says, count it all joy, which is the idea of to regard it, mentally to regard it. In your mind, don't think of it the wrong way, think of it the right way, have joy about it. The apostles certainly had this attitude in Acts 5, 41. It says, then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer honor for the name or his name. Well, why would we do that? Well, because, first of all, to share in Christ's sufferings is to follow in his steps. And there's something rather unique about realizing this. Peter hints at it. If you go back to chapter 1, verses uh, 11 and 12. Remember when we read this, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ. And then look what it says, and the subsequent glories. Did you ever notice how that's the exact pathway that the Bible lays out time and time again, and it's the exact pathway that our Lord Jesus trod? Um, I have another verse for you that I don't have there on the screen. I want to read this, Luke chapter 24. So in that situation on the Emmaus Road, when he's trying to explain to those sad believers what the story is, and he says to them in verse 20, it's, um, let's see, oh, no, so 26, not 27. I'm going to read verse 25 for the context. So he said unto them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Christ or for the Messiah to suffer these things, and, notice the progression, and to enter into his glory. And that's the exact thing that you find laid out consistently over and over again in the Old Testament concerning Christ, that the pathway was one of suffering leading to glory. So if, as Peter says in our chapter 2, verse 21, that he has left us an example so that you might follow in his steps. Folks, a whole lot more positive way of looking at suffering is to realize that, well, I didn't stand in line in this and I'm not really looking for it, but I understand something about this. I understand that if this falls my lot in the will of God, it can only lead to a greater, if you put this in quotation marks, appropriateness for me to share his glory because I'm following the exact path that he's laid out for me in my life and it's part of his plan I like this Romans 8 17 and 18 and if children then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him that's strong there right it's purpose we suffer so that or in order that, we may be glorified with him. Paul says, for I consider, or as the King James says, I reckon, I love that as a southerner, I reckon, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing with, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. It's God's way. And the second reason that we shouldn't be surprised, and a better way to approach 
the idea of suffering rather than thinking it's odd or strange or random or reacting improperly is to realize that suffering also brings God's blessing. In what sense? Well, I tried to find a way to word this for you here, and I'll try to let you know what I'm trying to get at with this. In the form of an undefined yet very real experience of God's presence. Does that sound mystical to you? I'm not trying to be spooky, but I am saying that what this is talking about is that God has a way of manifesting his glorious presence to us in suffering in a way that you do not encounter otherwise in life. And all you have to do is think of the three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace. Who gets that experience apart from the fiery furnace? When Nebuchadnezzar is standing out there looking and says, didn't we cast in three? Uh, I'm counting four. And God was with them in that place. Now, was God with them all the time? Yeah, but he wasn't with them quite like that. I mean, they were given. So how do we see that in the text? Look at verse 14. Uh, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. So th this blessing that's coming to us, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, does God's spirit, is he, does he indwell us? Yeah, every day, all the time, 24-7. But what's this talking about? Well, this is talking about something a little more or a little different that happens in the context of suffering and is termed a blessing. You could, uh, this is kind of interesting in the original, the of glory and of God spirit. Somehow it's linking God's glory to his spirit and the presence of the spirit with us. It says it rests on us. You can find some context in the Old Testament that might sort of give some indication of this. It says back when, this is Exodus 40, and the context is the tabernacle, they'd finished all the building, and it says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Um, hmm. that's a spe special manifestation of God's now, spirit and his glory. Bringing it to a little more personal level, what about Stephen? I mean, that's, that's a pretty difficult context with Stephen, right? I mean, you're about to have these stones land on you that are going to take your life, and they're looking at him. And they see something that he might not realize, but, I mean, he might not realize the look, but he realized what was happening. Gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. That's why I'm forced to word this like I did. And suffering often brings blessing in the form of an undefined yet very real experience of God's presence, his glorious presence because I can't tell you what that's going to be for you. And I guess if that sounds spooky to you, my thought is bring it on. I'm not looking to be there, but if I find myself there by God's will, bring on whatever it is you're talking about, Peter, because I don't want to miss out. I don't want to go through this experience and not come away from it with some 
sense of having met with God in a special way and had God meet with me in a special way. That's, that's I think, what we're going on here. All right, shot our wad on that. We've got to move a little faster. So what's the second way that you could respond? You might say stop, but if we say don't be deserving, look at verse 15. But he says, let none of you suffer as a murderer. <laughs> you say to yourself, that's a strange thing to say to a Christian audience. Depends on your background. What if you had Barabbas in your church? Do you know the story of Barabbas? Some people would have probably called Barabbas a freedom fighter. But in the insurrection, he had committed murder. If you read that, in the insurrection, he had committed murder. Now, I'm not telling you I know Barabbas got saved. That'd be wonderful. I'm just saying, especially, not that Jews would be exempt from this, but Jews were very exposed to all of the moral law of God, but Gentile believers, especially in Pontus, Cappadocia, Asia, Galatia, Bithynia, where he wrote these letters, they would have had all kinds of crazy things in their background, and it's incumbent upon us to realize, you know, you can't, you can't keep getting what you want or responding the way you responded as a Christian. You have to break with those things that are clearly wrong. So if you get locked up because you murder somebody, you know, what about today? What if you go and uh, you bomb an, an abortion clinic? And then you say, I did that in the name of Christ. Ah. I have a little problem with that. I'm not for the abortion clinic, but you can't break the law and bomb an abortion clinic and not expect to go to jail. This is what Peter is saying. He says, as a murderer, as a thief, an evildoer, or it could be translated a criminal. This next one, though, is what surprises. Or a meddler. <laughs> How many sermons have you heard on that? The King James translates it busybody. Isn't that strange? Doesn't that sort of strike you as being odd that Peter talks about these, all of these things that are clearly moral offenses as we think about the Ten Commandments? Although, well, yeah. So, murderer, thief, evildoer or criminal. Then he says a busybody. And this word that he comes up with is only here in the New Testament. Some people think Peter coined this word it is rather colorful because it is a compound that has the word other on the front of it or belonging to another with the word overseer, which is the word for bishop, like in a church. But it doesn't always have to be used in that context. could be any kind of an overseer, but it's interesting that you might bring that into it. But it's the idea of somebody who sticks his nose into everybody else's business. And I make the comment here, that's generally or almost universally unwelcome. So if you get called on the carpet because you do things that are not only morally wrong, but are pretty much universally not accepted by people and are given to be wrong, then don't go around and say, well, you know, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12. How many times have you heard people quote that and hide behind that when in reality they're just idiots? They just do things that bring it upon themselves 
this is what Peter says, so if it comes your way, be sure that you don't deserve it, and then we certainly know that Christ's example is absolutely the opposite. I have the verse for you in 1 Timothy 5.13, where it's translated that way. Um, beside that, they learn to be idlers, going from house to house, not only idlers, but gossips and busybodies. Doesn't matter whether you're male or female, it's not appreciated. And if you think about overseer, what about the preacher that sticks his nose into somebody else's, into the affairs of another pastor's church? I can tell you that's definitely not appreciated. So, anyway, this is what we get out of this. And Christ's example was the opposite of this, chapter 2, verse 22, because he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. All right, so we need to keep moving here. Um, our last thought is don't be ashamed. And uh, verses 16 through 19. So in the context of suffering, isn't it true? I mean, if you think about this, this is another improper reaction, but it's true that we often do this. We struggle with shame. I mean, do we really like our name cast out as evil? Do we really like... I used to laugh at this. I mean, and I... I, I if I use this example, I should maybe explain. But I used to laugh, you know, when I would hear somebody say about our church, a bunch of holy rollers. And I used to think to myself, you have no idea what you're talking about. You have never seen a holy roller. If you want to see a holy roller, I got places I can take you. Our church is sedate. Our church is reserved. I used, to, I used to tell our people, you know, when I came here as a young pastor, I was thinking to myself, you know, you have to be really careful the example you set because whatever you do, people take it a step further. So I, well, I want to be very measured. I don't want to be one of these people that, you know, all the time shouts out loud amens or something like that. So I, I was very reserved in that kind of thing. I came to find out I didn't need to be reserved in that area at all. They were already that way. And so these people would say something, but you know, I, I never really appreciated that. I remember the time uh, I had, was really a young Christian, had only recently gotten saved. I was trying to witness to my friends, which I probably a lot of you have had that experience. And so was, the Lord was allowing me to make a little bit of headway with one of my friends, and so he said one day, he said, well, would you like to stay for dinner? Now down south, that's, that was 2 o'clock or 1.30, something like that. So I said, sure. And so I had eaten at their home before, but it was before I was a Christian and at a different, where they lived at a different place. So we were at this new place, the new place where they live now, and I went, and I could tell right away something was different. I wasn't sure just exactly what it was. And then I realized, I mean, I was out there in the front room by myself. And his mother, he, and his brother were back behind a closed door. And he could tell some kind of a discussion was going on. And I didn't know quite what it was until I heard his brother say, I'm not going to eat lunch with a D-A-M-N religious fanatic. I thought, wow, doing better than I thought. It wasn't any fun, though, truthfully. I mean, I didn't like being called that. None of us likes that. So 
There's several places Paul uses this word ashamed. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And it's easy to be ashamed of the gospel. It's easy to, well, he had to tell Timothy three times over in chapter one about this. He uses this. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But share in the suffering of the God for the gospel by the power of God. Easy to be ashamed. Paul says in the next 12, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. And then he, he, he said about the household of Onesiphorus, may the Lord grant to the household of Onesiphorus for he often, mercy, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains or of my bonds. Paul really appreciated that. So it's easy. Peter gives the correct responses. First of all, humility. What, was, what does humility enable us to do? Um, well, a couple things. It sees the privilege of suffering and it also sees the discipline. That's why you have these quotations here that Peter gives. Now, we could bog down with this and I don't have the time, but I do want to just say a couple things as quickly as I can. So where does Peter get this heavyweight material in verse 17 and 18? When he says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. That's scary. And if, he be, if it begins, as he, now he kind of makes an application, if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? <clears throat> in other words, if the privilege of suffering, or if we looked at it as the discipline of suffering, comes into my life as a believer, and I'm saved and going to heaven, what in the world is going to happen to people who are not saved, not going to heaven? Where does he get this? Well, he gets this from Ezekiel chapter 9. As I say, Peter, the more you study this letter, the more you are impressed with how incredibly saturated he is in the Old Testament scripture. So in this vision of judgment that Ezekiel has, there are six executioners, so to speak, and then there's the man who's kind of guiding, or whoever it is, that's kind of guiding Ezekiel through this vision. And to the others, he said in my hearing, these are the six, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eye shall not spare, you shall know no pity. Kill old men outright, young men, maidens, little children, women, but touch no one on whom is the mark or seal, and begin at my sanctuary. That's what Peter picks up on. And he makes this application here. Well, this is where it comes from. So the other one, um, he doubles down. Verse 18, and if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So this is Proverbs 11.31, quoted from the Old Testament Greek Bible. If the Septuagint, if the righteous is repaid on earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner? Now, this gets into some questions, and I, I guess the best way is just to broach it and then run. <laughs> but sometimes what we think of is, well, isn't all of that done on the cross? Isn't the judgment of sin all done on the cross? Well, but you have to realize, too, that judgment's not always... Or, we're not talking now about penal. Many times God brings discipline into our lives, right? And he has to do that because sin is still a fact in this present world and unfortunately still a fact in our lives. 
So he brings this discipline, and <clears throat> that clock is right today, isn't it, Dennis? I remember last week. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. I think I wore it out last week. But anyway, so God does, and this Hebrews 12, 7, it, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is he whom his father does not discipline? All right, I, I'm just going to use the earthly analogy. Why do you get a spanking? You did something wrong, right? And so there are times when God brings discipline in our lives. It may not be because we've done something wrong, but it could be. And he wants to correct us, as a father does. It shows his love. Well, it takes humility to look at it that way. Instead of responding in pride and saying, why did this happen to me? I don't deserve this. Better maybe to step back and say, dear Lord, what are you doing in my life? Is there something you're trying to show me? And then the last thing is trust. So we're going to respond, hopefully, by God's grace. It's not normal to do this. Humility and trust. What's trust do? Trust embraces a faithful creator. Jesus said it on the cross using the same expression. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Absolute trust. And it's a banking term. And trust is a banking term. So if you have $10,000, well, make it less, otherwise, well, make it $9,999 so you don't have to worry about it so they don't report it at the IRS. Well, it's true. I mean, I found that out, not the hard way, because I hadn't done anything wrong. But I remember going down one time and making a cash deposit of over $13,000. We did that when we moved, because I had all this money in the safe. And it's just because of how I do my finances, and I siphon off so much every week and put it in this envelope and in that envelope, you know, as in Larry Burkett. And I had all these envelopes, and I had no idea I had all that cash money. So I went down to the deposit, and they had to report to the IRS. I said, well, if it told me that, I'd come back twice. But anyway, so you deposit this money. Why are you doing that? Because you trust them? Uh, well, you do. And that's what this is saying, that in, in, in the course of life, if these things come to us, we have to embrace God and trust him, just as you would the bank to keep your money safe. So it is that we can entrust God. Paul says, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I have committed and trusted to him against that day. 